As we've said each week, we're talking about joy because happiness isn't enough. Uh, happiness isn't good enough. It's never been enough. It will never be good enough because happiness is all about what happens. And sooner or later, life always interrupts happiness. But joy is impervious to life. And the reason that we're talking about joy is because we all need it and we all want it. But the joy that we want and the joy that we need and the joy that Jesus offers us is a joy that can weather any storm. It's a joy that can withstand the weight and the rigor and the stress and the demands of life. Uh, It's a joy that continues to stand even when life tries to take it out at the knees. Uh, Joy that absorbs the worst moments in life. Uh, You don't have to forfeit it in the face of circumstance. have to give it up just because of what you're going through, what's happening around you, what's happening to you. And that's the joy that this series is all about, and that's the joy that Jesus has made available to us all. Uh, A joy that doesn't retreat in the face of life's worst case scenarios. That's the type of joy that the scriptures talk about. A joy that doesn't retreat in the face of life's worst case scenarios. Not just bad times, but the worst of times. So when it comes to worst case scenarios, what's yours? Uh, I I choose to believe that most folks, at some point, they think about it. Now, we may not enjoy thinking about it, may not want to, but there's those moments where it just just flies across our mind and and we think about what if, and we think about this scenario, and we think about this particular thing that could happen, and and we see somebody else going through X, and we think, well, what if the same thing happened in my life? So what's your worst case scenario? In those moments when you think about it and you don't want to, what comes to mind when it comes to you or your family or your career, life? What are some of your worst case scenarios? Now, some of you who who try not to think in terms of worst case scenarios and and you're the same type of person that can't think about, you know, planning your own funeral and you don't want to think about buying life insurance policies because that's all, it gets your mind going in the wrong places. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, why in the world would I want to think about worst case scenarios? I think because we live in a fallen world where people have to endure their worst case scenarios all the time. You know someone You love some people that you've seen them in just the last few years go through what they would consider a worst case scenario. So maybe we should think about it a little bit. Now we hope they don't happen and we pray that they don't happen, but the question is what will we do if they do happen? How will we respond in the face of a worst case scenario if it happens to knock at our door? Now experts, they call this scenario planning. Uh, It's actually a part of risk management. It's strategic planning. It's where you try to bring the potential future into the present and then you pre-decide about what you're going to do if this potential future happens in your present. And you try to avoid unhealthy contingencies that may cause a bad situation to actually get worse. So you plan, you think about it, you entertain the worst case scenario so that you can pre-decide. What am I gonna do if this happens? How am I going to think if this happens? How am I gonna respond when this happens? How am I gonna feel if something like this happens? And so you pre-decide what you're gonna do in life's worst moments if they happen in your life. It reminds me of Gandalf and some of his wisdom you know, in The Hobbit. He said this, he said, it does not do to leave a live dragon out of your calculations if you live near one. In other words, if a dragon lives in your neighborhood, you shouldn't go through life as if you're never going to come into contact with that dragon. 
Now, the wisdom is this. In life, there are lots of dragons. We call them surprises. We call them disasters. We call them tragedies. We've got lots of names for them. Worst case scenarios. Why would we live life in a way never expecting to encounter a dragon when we know dragons live in the neighborhood? Why would we go through life and expect never to stand face to face with a dragon when we see people all the time standing face to face with a dragon? Now, in my line of work, um, it, it is one of the most difficult parts of what I do, but I'm often with people in the worst moments of their life. I often talk to people in the worst moments of their life. I get called, I'm invited to stop by. I have to make the visit when someone's going through their worst case scenario. And over and over again, over and over again, I've heard people in the middle of their worst case scenario say something like this. I just never thought something like this would happen to me. I just never thought something like this would happen to us. And that's Tolkien's wisdom there. Don't be surprised by the dragon when you know there's dragons in the neighborhood. And that brings us to joy because joy doesn't get surprised by life. That's biblical Christian joy. Joy doesn't wake up one day and the worst case scenario knocks at the door and, and joy is caught off guard by it. Joy doesn't get surprised by life. Joy, however, anticipates all the potentials that life may throw at us, and joy is willing to face it down when it occurs, and joy will remain standing even in the face of the dragons of life, because life itself reminds us that none of us are exempt from life. None of us are exempt from life, the good parts or the tougher parts of life. Uh, President Kennedy, he said this, this is good wisdom too. He said, the time to repair the roof is when the sun is shining. That's just good advice, all right? Uh, that's good, you know, in a literal sense, but that's good for what we're talking about because if life's good for you right now and things are pretty much smooth sailing and, and the past few months, you know, it's kind of interrupted your plans a little bit and it's kind of messed up your flow and your rhythm, but, but by and large, you're still standing and you're still good. And matter of fact, you, you just are really surprised. Uh, life's pretty good right now and nothing's really, the bottom hasn't fallen out. If that's you, now is the time to think about joy. Now is the time to seek joy, lay hold of joy, understand joy, possess joy, because sooner or later, life may turn. Sooner or later, the dragon that lives in the neighborhood may end up in front of you, and you want to have a joy that can survive the harshest moments of life. That was the joy that the apostle Paul had, and that was the joy that Jesus had. And in this series, we've been looking at Paul's letter to a group of Christians in Philippi called the book of Philippians. It's 104 verses. You can read through it in about 20 minutes, 104 verses. And, and all throughout those 104 verses, the overarching theme is joy. Paul's writing from prison, but yet what does he have? He has joy. What has Paul faced over and over again? He's faced the dragon over and over again, but what does he still have? He has joy. So the book of Philippians is a great study on how to get joy, how to keep it, understanding what it is and what it isn't. And so I wanna pick up today where we left off last week with bad beliefs. That nothing will undermine joy, nothing will kill and destroy joy faster than bad beliefs. Bad beliefs about God, about people, about life, and about yourself. Because everything that you think about God will begin to shape how you think about everything else. That's a big deal. And I wanna start by repeating myself there. 
Everything that we think about God will shape how we think about everything else. How we think about suffering, you know, that's one of the big things that unbelievers often, they, they have that as a, as a talking point. They can't understand why God would allow suffering in the world and why does bad things happen to good people? Well, our beliefs about God will shape how we think about suffering. It, it will inform how we process tragedy, how we respond when people mistreat us, uh, how we respond when life seems unfair and, and when life is very painful. All of those things come from how we think and believe about God because your belief about God and how you read the scriptures and what it teaches us about God, it forms a filter. Uh, every air conditioning system, it has a filter and all the air of that system passes through that filter. Your beliefs about God, it forges a filter through which you process everything that happens to you and around you. Your filter, which comes from your belief and my belief about God, everyone and everything passes through that filter. So how you think and how you feel about everyone and everything in life, it all goes back to how you believe and how you think about God. This is what we see happening in Paul's life. Paul had a filter and everyone and everything in his life, it passed through the framework of his faith. And it was his faith that made his joy possible. It was his right beliefs about God which allowed him to have joy in the most difficult of times. Uh, Chuck Swindoll, one of my favorite pastors, he's, he's actually my favorite pastor that I've yet to hear preach in person. And, and he's in his upper 80s and he pastors in Dallas, Texas. And he says over and over again that life is 10% what happens to you, 10%. 10% of what happens to you, 90% of how you respond to it. 90% of your life is how you respond to that little sliver of things, what is everyone, everything, it's how you respond to it all. And that's the impressive thing about Paul, it's how he responded to everyone and everything. So, Paul's faith, and don't miss this, Paul's faith shaped how he thought about, responded to, and felt toward everyone and everything in his life. There was nothing out of bounds. There was nothing that was shut off from that filter. Everyone and everything went through that filter which started with his beliefs and his thoughts about God. And your faith and my faith, it will do the same. So I want you to listen to what Paul is about to say. I want you to listen to his words and just not pay attention to what he's saying, but I want you to think for a moment about where the motivation comes from to say what he's about to say. I want you to see and hear what he believes about God and how his belief about God is shaping how he's thinking about everyone and everything in his life as he writes from prison, as he writes chained to a Roman soldier. Listen to what he says in chapter one, verse 12. He says, and I want you to know, I want you to know, it's really important for Paul, for his friends to understand how he's thinking. I want you to know my dear brothers and sisters that everything, everybody say everything, Everything, that's everything and everyone. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me here has helped to spread the good news. Now, it would be real easy for us just to sprint on to the next verse. It would be real easy as we're reading through the book of Philippians to just go on to the next verse, but we need to pause and we need to think and we need to do our best to put ourselves in Paul's shoes to fully feel the weight of Paul's words. He's in Rome. Was being in Rome part of Paul's plan? Yes, it had always been part of Paul's plan. 
Uh, Paul's plan was to take the gospel of Jesus to tell folks about the fact that God loved them and that Jesus had died for them. He was buried and raised on the third day that they could be forgiven forever freely. And it was all because of Jesus, not because of anything they had to do for God. God had taken care of everything. That God had offered the world a gift of grace. And Paul wanted to take that message to the world. His strategy was he wanted to take it to the metropolitan cities, the influential cities of the Roman Empire, tell folks about Jesus, start a church, and then he knew that that story would filter out of the cities into the rural areas. That was his strategy. That was the way he was going about his plan of building the church. So Rome was the most important city of the empire because it was the home of the emperor of the world, the most powerful empire that had ever existed in the world up until that moment. So was Rome part of Paul's plan? Well, of course it was. Had it always been part of Paul's plan? Of course it was. But was being in Rome in prison, chained to a Roman guard, part of Paul's plan? No. Rome was part of Paul's plan, but not being in prison in Rome. That was not part of Paul's plan. Now, Paul was an Enneagram one. He was a reformer. He was, he was a guy who could not leave things the way he found it. So he's type A. He's a planner. He's ambitious. He's eager. He's a get it done kind of guy. He sit down, plan, think about the strategy, think about the vision. He's thinking about what he needs to do. He's thinking about the best way to do it. And so he knows that what he needs to do, what he's been called to do, that it involves Rome. It involves Caesar. To be able to tell the Caesar of the world about what Jesus had done, are you kidding me? It could hardly get any better than that. It could hardly get even any bigger than that. But yet Paul's plans were bigger than Rome. Paul's plans were bigger than Caesar. His plan was actually to go to Spain, the Iberian Peninsula, as far west as what you could go in the first century world. That was Paul's plan. You say, well, how do you know that was Paul's plan? Because he put it in writing years before when he wrote a letter to the Christians in Rome. Listen to what he says. This is important. He writes to them. He says, I'm eager to visit you. He's talking to people in Rome. And, and he actually says before this that he's got, you know, he's got held up a little bit. He got delayed three years in Ephesus. He's went around to some of the other cities. He's been in Macedonia. He's been in uh, Athens. He, he's been all over the place. And he says, I'm really eager to visit you. I am planning. He's got a plan. I am planning to go to Spain. That's where he wanted to go. That's where he has his sights. He says, and when I do, because he couldn't conceive of any deviation from that plan. He fully intended that his plan would come to fruition. He says, I'm going to Spain and when I do, I will stop off in Rome. Rome was a mere layover for Paul. He was gonna go to Rome, do what he'd done in all the other cities, and then he was moving on to Spain. This was Paul's plan for the future. Perhaps you've got a plan for your future. Uh, you've got a plan for your children. You've got a plan for your business. You've got a plan for your future health. You've got a plan for your future finances. You've got, you've got a plan. A lot of us have a plan, whether it's written down, whether it's articulated or scripted or not. We've got an idea. We've got a plan. This was Paul's plan for the future. What he doesn't say is that he has any plan for being in prison in Rome. What he doesn't say is that part of his plan is getting stuck in a dungeon for years on end and not being able to go on to Spain like he intended to do. He had a plan, but he's in Rome and he's writing to the Philippians from jail and things had not turned out the way that he had planned because that's one of the dragons of life. You have a plan. We've got a plan. 
We can see the future. We're going to grow old together. We're going to stay healthy together. Our kids, this is what their future is going to look like. The business, we just see the business getting bigger and bigger and better and better. And we've got a plan, but sometimes life and that dragon shows up and our plans get bent. And sometimes our plans get broke. And Paul's in prison with a bunch of broken plans. And he looks back over all the events. He looks back to everyone and everything that brought him to this moment in time. And I believe that in his mind, as he writes this letter to the Philippians, that he goes back in his mind and he thinks about the end of his third missionary journey. Paul took three major tours around the Mediterranean part of the Roman Empire. And at the end of the third one, after he'd been in Ephesus for three years and after going to Athens and Macedonia, he ends that trip and he's got some money that he has received from the other churches that he had taken as an offering for the financially struggling church in Jerusalem. So Paul, after the end of his third missionary journey, and I think this is what he's thinking of when he wrote verse 12, about all the things that have happened to me have actually helped to further the good news. He's getting ready to go to Jerusalem to deliver that offering to the struggling Christians there in Jerusalem. Luke is with him, who wrote the book of Acts, a guy by the name of Aristarchus. He's there. Paul will mention him again in 1 and 2 Timothy. Timothy is there. A man by the name of Tychicus is there. There may be some other people, but this particular group of friends, because again, I go back to what we talked about in week one, life is just better with friends. Paul always had some people with him, people that he knew they were in his corner that made the bad times a little better. And so he's getting ready to go to Jerusalem. And as he gets ready to go to Jerusalem, they discover that in Jerusalem, there has been a plot hatched to take Paul's life. And this is how this episode is recorded in the book of Acts. It says, when we heard this about this plot to kill Paul, we and the local believers all begged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And so they're all begging Paul, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. If you go to Jerusalem, you're going to get killed. They're going to wipe you out. There's a plan already in motion. And it says, but Paul said, while this weeping, come on, guys, you're killing me. While this weeping, you are breaking my heart. Knock it off. I am, listen to this. I am ready. I am ready not only to be jailed at Jerusalem, but even to die for the sake of the Lord Jesus. Now, this is important. I mean, I'm telling you, this is good stuff. This was not part of his plan. But he was ready just in case it was part of God's plan. Was he planning on the dragon? Was he counting on the dragon? Well, he had the dragon in the back of his mind, but he planned to go to Spain. He planned to drop off in Rome for a short while and go on. Was he planning on prison? Was he planning on people trying to kill him in Jerusalem? No, but was he ready for it? Yes. Had he entertained the worst case scenarios of life? At some point he had. And he considered that God's purpose would always be more important to him than his plan. That God's plan must always be more important than his plan. So he had entertained the worst case scenario somewhere in life, somewhere in the moments leading up to this, and he had already predecided how he was gonna respond. He had already predecided how he was gonna think about it and how he was gonna feel about it. And he decided that he was not gonna forfeit his purpose. He was not gonna forfeit God's purpose for his life just to take an easy way in life. 
Even if the way meant hardship, even if the way meant pain, even if the way forward was not his plan, he was willing to take God's path forward because he believed that God could be trusted. Now, a lot of people lose their joy in the journey of life because they trade in their purpose for an easier way. They trade in their purpose to make things easier, so they take a shortcut. Or they say yes to something they should have said no to, or no to something they should have said yes to. And a lot of people lose their joy when they trade in their purpose. And let me say this, if you are not, and if I'm not living out my purpose that God has given me for my life and for your life, joy will escape us. If you live every day of your life, but you have no concern for God's purpose in your life, and I have no concern for God's purpose in my life, we shouldn't be curious about why we don't have the joy that the scripture talks about. Being a life of purpose is really part and really at the heart of having a life of joy. So it says, when it was clear that we couldn't persuade Paul, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. The Lord's will be done because it was evident that Paul cared more about God's will than he did his own will or even the will of his friends. Joy was possible for Paul because his greatest allegiance was to God's will and God's plan. And listen to this, how scary is this? His greatest allegiance was to God's plan rather than his own, no matter what God's plan may have included. Now that's a big deal. He counted the cost somewhere in his life and he came to the conclusion that God's way would always be the best way. And he decided ahead of time that when the choice came to him, he was gonna follow God's path forward and not try to bulldoze his own. He decided that God's plan, no matter what it included, no matter what it looked like, no matter what it felt like, no matter what dragon was on the path of God's plan, that God's plan would be worth it. And so we learned something, and here's what we learned. Joy is when I trust God more than I trust me. You trust you more than you trust God, joy's gonna be a problem. If I trust me more than I trust God, joy's gonna be a problem. But when I pre-decide, when I decide right now that every day I'm going to decide to trust God more than I trust me, to trust his plan more than I trust my plan, that's the beginning of joy. And when you decide that and when I decide that God can be trusted, I begin to see everything and everyone in light of who God is, what God has done and what God has said. So Paul, he heads on to Jerusalem and this is a fascinating part of the book of Acts. If you've never read through the book of Acts, you should read through the book of Acts because it's incredible. He goes on to Jerusalem with his little group of friends. He goes to the temple in Jerusalem the place where people go to worship. So he goes to the Jewish temple and while he's there, a group of his enemies, isn't this like life? A group of his enemies from Asia followed Paul to Jerusalem. They hated Paul so much. They despised him so much. They followed him all the way from Asia to Jerusalem. And while Paul is at the temple to worship and to visit with friends, 
they show up and they start a mob. Now, we know a lot about mobs and we know a lot about riots because we see some of that going on in the news every single day. So you've got a snapshot for what this portion of Paul's life looked like. There was a mob, there was a riot. They started yelling at Paul. They started taunting Paul. They were in Paul's face. They were trying to intimidate Paul. They were insulting Paul. They were cursing Paul and all at the temple. And all of a sudden, it turned violent. One punch was thrown, another punch was thrown, someone kicked. They dragged Paul out of the temple into the streets. They shut the temple gates behind him and there he is and they're mobbing him. There's a riot going on at the street and Paul is getting pummeled by these people. Now again, we've seen this play out. We've seen this happen. So there's an uproar outside the temple. The Roman commander, he hears about this. And this is what it says. The Roman commander immediately called out his soldiers and officers and ran down among the crowd. When the mob saw the commander and the troops coming, they stopped beating Paul. The police showed up. The authorities showed up. So they stopped beating Paul to death. Now, we shouldn't sanitize the Bible. I mean, the, the, the Bible is as graphic and as troublesome as anything you're gonna see on the news, anything you're gonna read in a book. So don't sanitize this. If you saw this footage of what happened to Paul on Facebook, on Twitter, on cable news, it would do to you what you feel every single time you see something like this happen. It will make you, and you will feel the rage. You will feel it. And it'll be anger that turns to nausea. And all of a sudden a convergent, if you would have been there, if you would have seen this, that's how you would have felt about it. You need to see this bloodthirsty crowd. Paul is saved only by the Roman soldiers who show up. They take Paul away. The crowd's yelling, kill him, kill him, kill him. I mean, they want him dead. They want him dead. They hate this guy. Can you put yourself in Paul's shoes? What have you done wrong? Other than to tell people about Jesus. Well, what have you tried to do other than to be committed to God's plan and God's will? He's getting beat to death in the street? Are you kidding me? Is, is this what happens for people who follow Jesus? It's happening to Paul. The dragon found him at the temple. So they take him back to the Roman barricades, to the fortress. The Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, they filed charges against Paul. And so Paul has to appear before the Sanhedrin which were the religious leaders, the, the godly people of the generation. And so they were asking Paul questions and Paul, he told them his story about how he had persecuted Christians, but then he met the resurrected Jesus and he gave his life to Jesus. He's been following Jesus and Jesus has changed his life. And the Supreme Court, they get so irritated. There's, there's punches thrown against Paul. It gets heated. It got so heated. This is what it records as the conflict grew more violent. This is not a trial. This is just violence. The commander, the Roman commander was afraid they would tear Paul apart. That's how bad it was. So he ordered his soldiers to go rescue Paul by force and take him back to the fortress. So they take Paul back and it says in Acts 23 verse 11 that that night the Lord appeared to Paul and said, be encouraged. <laughs> really? Be encouraged, Paul. <laughs> Lord, you're gonna to have to give me something better than that. Be encouraged. Just as you have been a witness to me here in Jerusalem, you must 
you must preach the good news in Rome as well. Paul, I know that Rome is part of your plan, but Rome is also part of my plan, but Paul, it's not gonna look like your plan. So God gives him a promise. He says, you're not gonna die in Jerusalem, you're gonna go to Rome. So God promises, God makes a promise. And and here's something we all just need to be honest about, put it on the table so we're not disappointed by it when it happens. God's promises don't make life easier. They do make life bearable and they do make life better, but they don't make life easier. God gives him a promise the next day, there's more trouble. 40, over 40 men take a, take a vow to God. And I don't know how this works, but 40, over 40 men took a vow before God not to eat or drink until they assassinated Paul. You think you got problems with that lady at work? You think that coach is getting on your last nerve? You think that the drama at school and online classrooms and trying to log in and log off? You think trying to relearn math again so you can teach your seven-year-old? A form of math that's akin to Egyptian hieroglyphics? You think that's tough? Imagine having a group of 40 men who take a vow to God not to eat or drink until they see your blood spilt in death. Are you kidding me? It's it's so fascinating because Paul's nephew, we don't even know his name, Paul's nephew, he learned about this conspiracy. The Sanhedrin was involved, these 40 plus men. He he knew about it. He went to the Roman commander and he said, listen, they're gonna try to kill Paul. They're gonna try to kill Paul. There's already a plan in motion. The hit's been put out. So the Roman commander decided to send Paul to a place called Caesarea Maritima. And for any of you who went to Israel with us, we went there. And it's by the sea, it was the headquarter, the headquarters of Rome and Judea. Uh, Herod the Great built a palace there, it was a hippodrome there. there, there was a massive theater there. I mean, it was unbelievable. We stood in the place that they took Paul. This Roman commander, because he knew that a group of people were about to kill Paul, he sent bodyguards with Paul, 200 soldiers, 200 spearmen, 70 mounted troops and two centurions, 472 bodyguards he sends with Paul. And under the cover of night, he whisks him away in this clandestine mission to save Paul from these assassins in Jerusalem. Yet all the while, God is at work. God has made a promise. This This is not Paul's plan. But this is evidently part of God's plan. He goes to Caesarea by the sea and he stands before the Roman governor Felix and he tells his story of conversion like he always did. Paul tells his story of conversion. And then he starts talking about the judgment to come and, and Governor Felix, he's sitting there listening and, and Paul starts talking about future judgment and he can feel his heart racing and he gets nervous and he breaks out in a sweat and he says, okay, okay, I've heard enough. Um, we're gonna adjourn this hearing because the idea of a future judgment before God, it so terrified him, he didn't wanna hear anything else and so he postponed the hearing and Paul will spend the next two years the next two years in prison in Caesarea Maritima. The next two years. This was not the way things were supposed to be. This was not part of the plan. Felix is succeeded by a guy by the name of Festus and Paul tells Festus his story. The Sanhedrin show up and ask Festus to transfer Paul back to Jerusalem because they still want him dead. And there's a bunch of hungry guys. I mean, they've not eaten over two years. So, I mean, they're about to die themselves. And so they said, transfer Paul back to Jerusalem. And 
Then Paul said, no, I appeal my case to Caesar. And that was his right as a Roman citizen. So before he left for Rome, King Agrippa, the great grandson of King Herod the Great, who was king of Judea when Jesus was born, King Agrippa said, I wanna hear from Paul. And so Paul came in to King Agrippa and he told him his testimony, he told him his story. And it's that famous line, King Agrippa looks at him at the end and says, Paul, you almost persuade me to be a Christian. You almost persuade me to be a Christian. So shortly after Paul was put on a boat towards Rome, and when you think that things can't get any worse, they do. They get on a ship, storm sets in. This storm sets in and it doesn't move. Gale force winds. Everybody's terrified, everybody thinks the ship's gonna go down and it will. They're throwing cargo off the side of the ship to try to lighten the load. Everybody's horrified, everybody thinks that certain death is on the way. And Paul, who's with a whole bunch of other prisoners, he's with Luke and also Aristarchus who got to travel with him. He gathers everybody together who's absolutely freaking out on the boat and he looks at them and he says, but take good courage. None of you will lose your lives, even though this ship will go down. Paul says, listen, I, my past few months, I'm telling you, this ship's going down. I'm not gonna be caught off guard anymore. This ship's gonna go down for last night an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve. He stood beside me and he said, don't be afraid, Paul, for you will surely stand trial before Caesar. Paul, you're not gonna die out here at sea. It's not gonna be comfortable. It's not gonna be fun, but you're not gonna die. What's more, God in his goodness, his goodness, goodness? Who could even be thinking about the goodness of God in the midst of all this mess? But the goodness of God has granted safety to everyone sailing with you. So take courage and then listen to his words. This is big, for I believe God. It will be just as he said. And here was Paul's faith. When nothing seems to be working out, God is working it out. You can't see it. In that moment, you won't feel it. You have to pre-decide it. You have to pre-decide God can be trusted. And when it doesn't seem to be working out, you have to believe that God is working it out. The ship, the ship goes down. They end up on an island. They're cold, they're hungry. They're building a fire, so help me God. Paul reaches in to get some kindling and a poisonous snake bites him on the hand. And at this point, I just imagine he just laughs. He's thinking, this is crazy. This is insanity. You gotta be joking me. And he shakes it off and everybody's waiting for him to die and he doesn't die. And you know, it's just a crazy kind of thing. And three months go by and then they're put on a ship and they head to Rome. When he gets off the ship in Rome with a bunch of other prisoners, he becomes under Rome's custody. He's put chained to a Roman soldier, taken to a Roman cell. And sometime shortly thereafter, he picks up a pen and that's when he wrote back to the Philippians. After all that misfortune, after all that unfairness, after all that pain, after all that disappointment, that's when he said, and I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me here has helped to spread the good news. He looks back and there was lots of bad. 
But the good that God had done, the good that God was doing was never eclipsed by the bad. Paul never lost his ability to see that God was working somewhere back there in the darkest shadows of his circumstances. It hadn't worked out the way Paul wanted it to. This was not part of his plan, but he was okay with that. He had been in his enemy's sights the whole time, but he realizes he had been in God's hands the entire time. He wanted to go to Spain. Not sure if that's gonna happen anymore, but he doesn't feel stuck. He doesn't feel trapped. He actually feels like he's right in the middle of God's activity. Isn't that something? With all his plans shattered on the floor of that Roman dungeon, he feels like he's right in the middle. See, here's what we do. It gets tough for us. We assume God's mad. We assume assume God's angry. We assume that we've done something wrong. We assume judgment. We assume that something about us is out of line. Paul assumes he's right in the middle of the activity of God. So don't miss his words. No self-pity will you find here. No frustration, no anger, no resentfulness, no bitterness, no grudge bearing. He's not looking to settle the scores of those 40. He's not looking to try to get even with the Sanhedrin. He's not playing the blame game. He's not gotten cynical and negative. He's not saying, feel sorry for me. Look at me. Let me tell you what I've been. None of that. And he says, as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace garden to everyone else that I'm in chains for Jesus. He said, I'm chained to these guys 24 seven and I've got to tell every single one of them my story and about what Jesus has done for them. He says, my chains are preaching. He looked at his chains and he didn't see a problem. He looked at his chains and he saw his purpose. What if the thing that you feel chained to, what if the things that you feel chained by Instead of looking at those chains and seeing problems, limitations, seeing being trapped, what if you could look at the chains that God has sovereignly, providentially allowed to exist in your life? What if you began to look at those chains and see purpose? You don't feel trapped by them. You feel like you're right in the middle of God's activity. And he says, and because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. He says, other people, they're watching me. they've, They've seen me. They've been paying attention to me. And they've been inspired by what I've been going through. And other Christians are finding boldness and courage because of how I've handled this. He says, all the bad that's been in my life has actually been for somebody else's good. And Paul said, I'm okay with that. Can you believe that? Getting to the place where you say, God, all the bad that exists in my life right now, that may exist in my life in the future, if it's for somebody else's good, if it benefits somebody else, I'm predeciding right now. I'm okay with that. Because Paul's belief was that in the midst of the bad, God is working things out for good. That's his faith. That's it. I'm gonna say it three or four different ways, but I'm saying the same thing. In the midst of the bad, God is working things out for your good. Joy assumes God is up to good even when things are bad. That's joy. Joy is being in prison and you're chained to a garden. You can smile and you can think about good times and you can think about friends and you can be grateful and you can pray for other people. When you have this type of joy, you get set free from the dimensions of your circumstances. You can think bigger than the little prison cell that you are in. 
You're able to see beyond the chain. You're able to see beyond the door. You're able to see beyond the complex. You're able to see beyond the problem. You're able to see beyond the season. You're able to see beyond the politics of it. You're able to see, be, you're able to see the big picture. You get set free from the dimensions of your own personal circumstance. You get set free from self-preoccupation or the preoccupation with other people. You move beyond that and you think about how to do good for others. It was Paul who said, I'm confident that God is gonna work all things for the good, all things to the good. He believed that when things are bad and even when they get worse, God is working it out for my good. So what's the application? What, what, what can you begin to do today? Hope for the best, plan for the worst, but know either way, God is working it out for your good. That was Paul. He had a plan, have a plan. Prepare, have a plan. But be ready for the dragon. Predecide and know that no matter what, God is gonna work it out for your good. God takes the bad that wasn't part of our plan and he works it out for good because it was part of his plan. Joseph was betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, falsely accused, falsely incarcerated. And at the end of it all, he said, everything that the enemy meant for evil, God meant it for good. Ephesians 1.11 says that God is working all things, all things. I want you to say that with me, all things. One more time, all things. He's working all things out according to his own perfect will and purpose. God is in control. God is in control of your life. God is in control of my life. He was in control of Paul's life. And he's got a plan. It may not be part of my plan, but it's his plan. And his plan is always for my good and for his glory. And the best case scenario is God is always in charge of my worst case scenario. So whatever dragon may breathe in our face, God's got it. No matter what bad comes our way, God's got it. God can turn it for good. God will turn it for good. And even though you can't see it, and even though you may not be able to feel it, God is working it right now for good. And when you believe that, when you're confident about that, that's joy. That's laughing through the pain. That's being able to smile when it's not good. That's joy. And that's the joy that Jesus has made possible for all of us. Let's bow our heads for just a moment. All of our heads bowed, all of our eyes closed. If you're here in the room, if you're watching online, for those of you in Williamsburg and Somerset, if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, if you don't have that type of joy that comes from a relationship with Jesus, then right now, just say these words, Heavenly Father, I receive your gift of grace. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for being raised from the dead so that I could be forgiven fully, freely, forever. I receive that gift right now in Jesus' name. With our heads still bowed, our eyes closed, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, but, but you've lost your joy, Somewhere along the way, the bad eclipsed the good. This is the time to get it back. 
to decide in this moment that God can be trusted, that God is in control, that God can take the bad and he can turn it for good. You have to believe that, you have to hold on to that, you have to have your confidence and hang all of your hopes on that. That's where joy comes from in the darkest night. Father, speak to us in this moment as we sit in this moment and listen to the words of this song. Let the words of this song ring true that you do take everything and you work it for our good and for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.